Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4.23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the type of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. As often I say, it's important to set the context for the text, and so we're going to be pulling out as we launch into this new series of reflections, people whose lives reflect what God's relationship looks like. And we're going to look at one of the judges named Gideon. So I want to give you the context in the larger broad stroke of what, where is Gideon in the midst of this story? So the first is to know that Israel was divided into 12 different tribes. And what's really important before you ever get to the text is to have an idea of where the tribe of Gideon was. You're going to hear that Gideon's tribe was Manasseh. Manasseh and Ephraim are the two tribes based on the sons of Moses with his Egyptian wife. And Manasseh and Ephraim were considered sort of half-tribes, as you can figure out why, because it was outside of the Jewish community. Manasseh was sort of seen as the, the weaker of the tribes. Their location, um, I, I did some, this is a free map I got, and then I used... Um, the draw feature on MS Word as best I could to give you an idea of what's going on in the geography of the text. The yellow blob that I filled in, that's the general area for the tribe of Manasseh. Each tribe would have a geographic area. But there was also an eastern portion of Manasseh that extended beyond and over to the right over in the area of the Gilead. So Manasseh was a large area. But the events that we're going to read about take place primarily in the area that is highlighted along the Jezreel Valley, somewhere along the Carmel Mountain Range. You're going to hear about the Midianites. And who were the Midianites? The Midianites came from the south and from the east. And as you look in the bottom right-hand side, you see that's where they came from. But really, what we know historically from evidence is that if you follow the red line up through Peniel and Sukkoth up to Beth-Shain around, they actually, the Midianites, when they would raid, they would come up to the east and they'd stay hidden along the, Carmel, the, the Jordanian River Valley, and, and they would sort of sneak across behind the mountain range, and they would have sort of sneak attacks behind the few mountains that were there. And what they would do is the Midianites would wait. What they'd do is they'd wait till the crops that, that all of the people, the, the tribe of Manasseh, they'd put the effort into um, getting all the rows ready, planting the crops, but when it came time for harvest, they would come in and just pillage and take everything. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read a passage about how God calls a series of people in the book of Judges to come forth and lead God's people. So who are the judges? They're, they're people who basically, as you try, trace back biblically, the judges were actually instituted by Moses before his death in what is now the Jordanian area on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they were responsible for administering and overseeing the law and handling disputes. Then in a series, God calls these judges for people of Israel, whether it be in the northern tribes or the southern tribes of all 12 kingdoms. Uh, it's, it's filled with moments of both faithfulness and forgetfulness. 
moments of triumph and moments of tragedy. And what's clear is it's a historically honest reflection of the implications of what happens in intimacy and faithfulness with God and times of abandonment with God and times when we forget who God is. So everything in the text we're about to read is set up in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And so that sets up the text for us today that we're going to move into. Where is Gideon? In a moment, we're going to find that, and I'm going to kind of pause as I read the text just to give a few inflections. You may be invited to read a verse or two out loud with me, so please pay attention. And I invite you to stand in respect to God's holy word. Judges chapter 6. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, read with me, what did the Lord what say? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of the Midianites. The Lord turned to him and he said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And the Lord answered, and what did he say, church? I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites and leave none of them alive. And Gideon replied, if thou found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please don't go away until, until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, and read these words, church, I will wait until you return. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. For those of you who are um, nerd, nerds of history, uh, I've created a few copies on the uh, back table to your left as you leave that actually gives you an overview and summary of the five major units in the book of Judges and fills in for you how God calls everything from Othniel all the way through Samuel and all the judges in between. It gives the time record of when this happens. It also gives you all the major movements of God's work within Gideon's life. And it's just a simple double page, but um, it is not in big Burt or big font Burt size. It's uh, to fit it this size. It is small. You will have to have your glasses. Or another trick I've learned since this is a full service church. Did you know you can actually use your iPhone camera to make things bigger to read? Yes. <laughs> I heard an amen out there somewhere. I've learned that recently, too. What's amazing about the historical record of what we learn is that, in fact, through Egyptian hieroglyphics in history, we have what we call extra-biblical material that shows us 
that the story of the Israelite people is in fact a part of Egyptian history. It's not exceptionally popular, it's not listed in many places, but we do have places where it reflects what had happened. And what's important about that is it grounds us in the understanding of the conquest. For while it is difficult for us to understand such a violent time when people would conquer others entirely or simply rather going down to the HEB, folks would gather together and say, hey, the tribe of Manasseh's crops are in harvest. Let's go to the grocery store. It was the way the world was. But within the relationship between Gideon and God, we see something rather unique that mirrors, I think, things we can learn that reflect a relationship that we have with God. Gideon's threshing wheat in a wine press, and the reason that he is doing that is that he is afraid that the Midianites are going to see him. And so you may have in your mind a really large wine press, but the wine presses weren't really that large. They were, think of small batch wine press. But a wine press would be literally like a large cattle tank. I grew up in Wichita Falls, and occasionally when there was no tank, you would have a metal tank. And that's about what we're talking, maybe 8, 10, 12 feet in diameter. That's what the wine press would be. And Midian's there, I mean, Gideon is there because he's threshing the wheat. And, and if he's threshing the wheat, what did the text tell us? When did the Midianites tend to raid? During harvest. If he's threshing the wheat, what has he done? He's harvested, right? So at this season of life, he's trying to be protective. He's trying to ensure that he is not going to get raided by the Midianites. And yet this flow of conversation between God and this angel and Gideon seems to take a curious turn because uh, God shows up and says to Gideon, what's up, mighty warrior? You know, God's looking through the lens of seeing like a Russell Crowe gladiator. Are you not entertained? You know, this powerful figure. And literally Gideon sees himself as like a Don Knotts or, or, or maybe... Um, I really couldn't figure out who the, who, the, who the Barney Fife is of the younger generation. So someone help me out with that when you leave. So if you're 20 and younger, tell me who the Barney Fife is, right? The Gideon didn't see himself. Why? Because of his lineage, of his history, of who he is, because of the history of the conquest, external factors, internal factors, his family story, all of that happens to Gideon. And so when God comes to him, he can't see what God's calling him to be. You see, what's important is God sees in us what we cannot see in ourselves. God sees in us what we cannot see in ourselves. Now, I'm going to turn you into the choir, and I'm going to make this next point to the choir. If you ever thought about it, I bet these boys behind me could name every pastor in Houston by the back of their head. So you're the choir. You're the church. Looks different this side, doesn't it, huh? I think it's a wonderful and amazing thing you're in the choir. When I grew up in church, there was a man named Don Unwin who was both the organist and the choir director at Floral Heights United Methodist Church where I grew up. And Don told me when I was in eighth grade that I should go to the choir. And I said, no. And then someone else said, I should go be in the choir. And I said, nope. 
And then someone else said I should be in the choir, and I said, nope. Then my mom said I should go to the choir, and I said, yep. <laughs> right? Other people had seen in my life what I did not see in myself. And because of that, I began singing my freshman year in high school, both at the school choir and also in the church choir. What that eventually led me to do was to participate in a college choir where when I was in Fano, Italy, I answered the call to ministry. You see, what I didn't know was what God was doing in my life, not saying you're going to go in ministry just because you're in a choir. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is listen to the people around you who help see your gifts and your abilities. Now, wasn't that really cool? Because it didn't affect you at all, right? And you're going, yeah, tell those kids that. Yeah, you bet, Pastor. Encourage those young lives. What about you? What about you? Because our response is typically Gideon's response whenever there's a call of God where he sees something in our life that we do not yet see. And usually it is the same thing. God, you've got the wrong person. I love the way the text says, pardon me, Lord, but what about this? Pardon me, Lord, what about this? Here's the grace of God in the midst of this text. We are all unfinished work, and God will stay in the conversation with us. Read that with me off the screen. We are all unfinished work, and God will stay with us in the conversation. Friends, it doesn't matter your age or where you are. God's inviting you into this powerful, beautiful work that you say every week in the Lord's Prayer, don't blame me, blame yourself and blame God. You speak it every week when you say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth where? As it is in heaven. We wanted God's kingdom to be born. And what's beautiful to know is that we're all unfinished work. And we stay in the conversation. It was in that same church that when I, when I later came back, I had somebody, look, when you're a preacher's kid, you get a blame for a lot of things that you don't do, and you get a pass on some things that you do. And which is which is none of your business, because I've asked for forgiveness for it, right? <laughs> and thanks be to God, there was no social media in Wichita Falls growing up. Though my mother did put a Polaroid picture of the truck I drove, on the bulletin board where every police officer went by in the ER. And she wrote, this is my son's truck. Stop it every time you see it, Ellen. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm a law enforcement chaplain now. I had so many positive interactions with the officers growing up. But I was an unfinished work. But oftentimes people would say, oh, you're following in your father's footsteps. And, and literally the reason I had to go to Fano, Italy, I think, I really do. I think I had to go to Fano, Italy to answer the call to ministry is people would say, you're following in your father's footsteps. And I thought it was just sort of a family thing. I had to get distance between where I was being raised and those voices to claim that for myself. And one of the, one of the women in the church, Miss English, her husband owned English pharmacies it was the last soda jerk counter. That's probably something a lot of you young ones have no idea. A soda jerk is not a bad person, okay? Um, soda jerk, they would jerk a lever, 
and they would put soda, but there would actually be the actual um, syrup that would go in, and they'd stir it right in front of you. Look, I know you kids think I'm really, really old, but look, I'm, raise your hand if you've ever had a drink out of a soda jerk, right? Okay, see, I'm not, these are my people, right? <laughs> these are my people. And she said, you're following your father's footsteps. I said, well, no, I think I'm making my own footsteps, but they look a lot alike. We all know that when we look reflectively in our family, in our formative years, but friends, we're still unfinished work. And here's the beautiful thing. Not only is the good news that we're all unfinished work, but here's another piece of great good news. God meets us where we are, and he leads us to places that shape who we will become, and he will wait for us in the process. When you read that text, see that it's a conversation that Gideon and God have together. Wait, Lord, you got the right person? Yes, Gideon, I got the right person. Well, hang on, what about this? I am, did you see how Gideon said this? Not only is my tribe the weakest tribe, which is probably true. Last place was a tie between Ephraim and Manasseh. So he gives them, my people aren't strong, so I can't do this. And then he also says this. He says, and I am the what of my clan? I am the weakest of my clan. I mean, basically, Gideon's saying, God, I'm a loser of losers from the family of losers. How can you call me? He calls him because what you see displayed in God's call is that if the loser of losers leads God's people, then who should get the glory? Who will ever doubt what God can do? My first appointment was at First United Methodist Church in Louisville, Texas, and unbeknownst to me, Paul Sackett um, put together what they called the teaching committee. As you came in, you had to serve for two years. You had a teaching committee. And I walked into that first meeting, and he said, I've got everything set up for you. Don't worry. Helen is going to chair the committee. You'll be in good hands. We sit together. There's eight of them around a table. And she looks at me, and she says, I can't believe you made it into ministry. And that was sort of a startling thing. She said, no, you don't understand I knew you when you were in like first and second grade. I was in your dad's church in Plano, Texas. Boy, Bert, if God could use you in ministry, he could use just about anybody. <laughs> God uses all those people in all those places to shape us, and God will wait for us. I said, God, I'm the loser of losers from the family of losers. How can you use me? I'm not equipped. I don't have the experiences. Oh, but wait. We don't tend to do that. We tend to give God the list of the reasons we should not qualify to be called because of what we have done in the past. Gideon's no different. God, I just, you got the wrong person. And then Gideon actually begins to bargain with God at the end of this text. And when he bargains with God, what he says is, wait, wait, uh, if I really found favor in you, and this is before, if you know the story of Gideon, it's fascinating. You should read it the rest of the way. You think God is, Gideon and God are done with this, hey, let me prove it, prove it, let me prove it, I'll prove it. Keep reading in the text. God's grace is so resilient and patient with Gideon. And it begins with this. Gideon says, look, if I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign it's really you talking to me. Let's just pause on that. Let's just pause on that. When you look at the biblical record, if you take out Moses and a few others, Gideon is an elite company. Elite company. He's taught not only to the angel of the Lord, but the Lord. And now what does he want? He wants more proof. God, is it really, really you? 
It's like, golly, Gideon, give up. Is it really you? Is it really, really you? Is it really, really, really you? And, and God says, I'll wait for you. Go ahead and I'll wait for you. But in this sense of the waiting process, here's what's really important that we need to hear. In both our personal life and public life, idol, I-D-O-L, and I-D-L-E, idol and idol worship leads to destruction. N.T. Wright says it this way, you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object you worship. And N.T. Wright says the important thing to ask about that is, what do you worship? God's waiting on Gideon. And Gideon's simply asking God, can I know it's really, really, really you? Here's the beautiful thing. God is going to wait for us. Even in the times where we worship idols, which are replacing God, or we have idol worship, which means it's just sort of going through the motion, God is still going to wait for us. Now I want to close by jumping forward in the text. And it's, I didn't even give it to the, the, the IT folks and whatnot, so unless you have your iPhone Bible, or unless you have your real Bible, you're just going to have to trust me. There's no assist on this one. You've got to do a little bit of work, church. You need to write down Judges chapter 3, verse 64. Judges chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 34. Chapter 6, verse 34. This is what the text says. The Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon when he sounded the trumpet. Now we all know the trumpet sound, right? Here's what's fascinating about that text. I wanted to end with this because from the Gideon that's in the wine press hiding, asking God, is it really, 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 really you? To this moment. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. It means wind or breath. The spirit of the Lord, the wind of the Lord, the breath of the Lord took possession of Gideon. And the word, the word that means take possession is actually labash in the Hebrew. It means to be put on or to be clothed. In other words, when Gideon answered the call, God swept him up and surrounded him, clothed him with his presence. And so when we feel called by God, we need to know this. God does not call the equipped. He equips those he calls. And if you feel inadequate to the task, you may be the very person that God wants to call. Friends, the world is filled with enough examples of how we have pottery barn Jesus. How we put him in skinny jeans with a full set of hair and a perfect little family and a nice car and a beautiful 401k and you've got your best new life. There's plenty of that out there. You know what the world needs? The world needs to know that some days when life sucketh, right? When you get the bad news, when you stand with people that you love and diagnoses are not changed, when violence doesn't seem to be eradicated, when the brokenness of the world seems to take over, we are the ones who say God will prevail. We're the ones that stand in the gap. We're the ones that say we may say that there are bad things happening, but our God gets the last word. He is with us. And if you personally identify as feeling inadequate, come to the club of Gideons. And beware, my friends, every excuse that you give to God He's going to respond the same way. Yeah, it's me calling you. Yes, it's me 
calling you. Every one of us is who we are because someone saw something in us we didn't see in ourselves. Miss English, Don Unwin, my parents, coaches, people who helped me hear and become. Who in your life do you need to thank for helping you become and hear who you are? And who is God wanting you to help show the way?